Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea. Because in nature, it's always Herbal Hour. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. Today we have guest Joanne Bono. She is a family herbalist, nutritionist, and founder of Holistic and Herby. Welcome to the Herbal Hour. Thanks so much, Bogdan. I'm really excited to be here. It's been a long time coming. It has been, yeah. We've, we've had this in the works for what, a month, two months maybe? Well, you first asked me back in March, mm-hmm. and I was like, yes, but not now. And I feel like the last couple of months in particular, we've been touching on it, and now we're finally able to make it happen. So, yay. Very exciting. So, what what is Holistic and Herby, and how did mo- motivational wellness tea blends come about? That's an awesome question, and it's, it's a big one. Um, Holistic and Herby is all of the aspects of me um, that I've had to figure out and put forth in a positive way in the last almost decade at this point. I was very sick for a long time with chronic Lyme disease. And what I've had to learn in the process is not only how to support my body, but also support my emotional needs and all of the things that come along with having to do hard things. So mm-hmm. my tea blends came about because I physically needed things. I needed vitamins, minerals, nutrients. I wasn't digesting anything and I was super stressed and I needed to find ways to get my body and my mind in a place where I could finally start responding to treatments. And during that process, a lot of, a lot of emotions come up. And I needed to find ways to have myself like mentally stay focused and stay on track. And motivation kind of came about after a period where I was particularly salty and I knew that I couldn't be that way forever. And I needed to find a way to kind of keep myself going. So it, the mantra just came to me one day, and I wasn't really in the headspace to think about it. So I put it aside, and then I kept thinking about it every so often. It would keep coming back to me. And then finally one day it just it just clicked. I'm like, oh, I could put a teaspoon off on this. I always have a cup of tea in my hand. And all of my blends are kind of designed to put me in a better mood. So motivation kind of just was born. Yeah, I have one of those... Uh those stickers that you made it, it says belief in yes, yourself the belief and I look in at it, it makes me smile every time because oh, thank you. I, I look to the side and I'm like all right yeah yeah um, that was one of my favorite ones that was the one that really stuck with me that connected the motivation because I thought of it and I was so salty at the time I'm mm-hmm. like I can't think of anything positive right now so we're just going to put that in the corner and I saw I think I don't even remember where it was but I saw the uh, the belief, and then I just added on to it, and it just it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. And that's been my main one. I put it in all of my tea bags. So anytime somebody has an order, they'll get a little motivational sticker, just something to make them smile, make their day a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super common for people who get into the uh, healing space. There's this idea of the you know the wounded healer myth. Uh, mm-hmm. Chiron, I talk about it a mm-hmm. lot. Um, 
it seems that, you know, that's what leads most people to get interested in, you know, wellness or herbalism or things like that. It's because they have like a loved one or th- themselves that they're trying to find some solution for that they haven't been uh, been able to. Um, so you started off uh, doing a nutrition work yes. before? I, um, I was actually not in the nutrition space at all. I was in school to become an American Sign Language interpreter mm-hmm. when life kind of had other plans for me. And while I was going through treatment, I noticed I was responding really well to uh, not only the nutrition, but the herbal portion of the treatment. So I did some course corrections, and at the time I didn't know if I would even be well enough to finish the program, but I said I'm just going to do it anyway and see what happens. And um, I did it, and I finished early, and I started with just nutrition. And then I noticed that the herbs were really helping me, so I decided Mm -hmm. to go to herb school. And throughout that process, I just started incorporating teas and just nervines and digestive support into client practice. And as my business evolved and as my practice evolved, I realized incorporating the herbs was really helpful because a lot of herbs are nutrition. Like most people don't realize that they're just nutrient powerhouses. Right. Um, So incorporating that just from a nutrition standpoint was really helpful. And I work with a lot of people who have chronic conditions. So I'm used to seeing like really depleted situations. And the best thing I can think of, one of my taglines uh, now is Mighty Minerals. And I'm working on a blend for that specific purpose because our soil is very depleted. And then therefore our vegetables are depleted and then we're depleted. Mm -hmm. So getting all of those minerals in just with herbs is a really good way to kind of support the body. So my practice is kind of a little bit of everything all in one, but just how can we support the body as best as possible while people are going through some really tough stuff, whether that's physical or emotional. I incorporate blends into my practice to help people with where they are and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. It's kind of uh, uh, fascinating to me. Um, The idea of vitamins, it only really, uh, they were only really discovered in the, you know, 1900s. And the idea that there's these uh, substances in foods that we need that aren't based on, you know, protein, uh, fat, and carbohydrates. And it makes me wonder you know, that's what we know now, but mm-hmm. in 100, 200 years, what kinds of things might we find in our, you know, in our foods and diets that are required, you know, for living a healthy life? Things that are in like vegetables, say, that are even uh, beyond that that are needed. So I always kind of wonder around that um, that topic. People have always, you know, known certain foods are healthier, but mm-hmm. they didn't know exactly why. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really good that the the research is digging more into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how does that, how do you kind of combine that in your work when you're doing kind of uh, nutrition and herbalism? Do you find that they go well together? I do. And I also find that in a lot of cases, especially with the people that I'm working with who have been through a lot, that there is a really big emotional component wall, if you will, that needs to be knocked down in order for people to make the changes that they want to make. And I was even somebody who had to go through that process myself on, on multiple occasions. And working with herbs is really, really helpful for supporting what we need to make changes that are going to help us in the process. Like, we're still going to be frustrated and it's still going to be hard, but 
the plants are kind of there as friends along the way. That's mm-hmm. how I've that's how I've seen it, and that's how I've now seen it in practice. People who have had hard time making changes have a little bit of an easier time making mm. the change. Um, so it's just a matter of helping people be more comfortable during the uh, during the adjustment period, and whatever that might look like for them, it look it's different for everybody. Mm. What do you think about the? Uh, of course, there's many different uh, approaches to herbalism. Mm-hmm. There's some that use more like single herbs mm-hmm. in higher doses mm-hmm. and some that use more, you know, formulas, com- uh, combinations and synergistic blends. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your take on that? How do you how do you approach that? I love it all. Um, I think it depends on the person, the intention. Mm-hmm. I interestingly enough, I didn't start off with simples, maybe a little bit with chamomile tea, but I'm not counting that because I just, I drank that anyway. That wasn't my first intention. Um, When I started as an herbalist, I immediately just started making blends. And my teachers always encouraged herb of the week, herb of the month, which I do now, but I definitely started with, I want to throw all of these things at this right Mm -hmm. now, but I was also going through a lot and everything just connected with me on a level that made sense. So I just started blending right away. but there have been plenty of instances in my practice where I think somebody would benefit from just this, sim- just this simple, and mm. that's what we'll work with. So mm-hmm. it really, I, I kind of take the assessment and go from mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it's, um, it's a question that I've been kind of uh, exploring through, through different approaches because uh, there was this idea in, uh, in ancient times and uh, herbalism that there was like one like perfect herb that would completely something about the, you know, the energetics of it mm-hmm. that it would you, you tailor that one herb in like a higher dose where um, it's kind of like the have you heard of the doctrine of uh, signatures? I have. Yeah. So that's the idea that um, it's kind of medieval and and pre-ancient that uh, the shapes and the appearances of herbs and Mm -hmm. plants kind of express what they what they do so this idea that there's some kind of harmony or or pattern that could be reached with the single herb versus the versus the formula and of course some herbs go really well together Mm -hmm. and others it seems like theoretically they could go well together but they don't uh they don't so much. There's, of course, a lot of, you know, process and experimentation, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. w- what are some things you kind of have picked up as you've studied herbalism, worked with clients, kind of big, big insights for how to how to view it? So many things. I don't really know where to start. Um, I think the most important and probably the one that a lot of people aren't really talking about right now is the hypersensitivity piece, mm-hmm. especially people with chronic conditions, how less is sometimes so much more. And I know I said earlier, you know, I just want to throw all of the herbs at it. Um, I do like to keep things more simple than mm-hmm. more complicated in my blends. I'm talking maybe like five herbs or less. And I know in traditional Chinese medicine, I've worked with some really great blends that have seven plus herbs in them and they have worked beautifully. But as far as my own personal formulating at this point, anyway, I'm trying to keep it a little more simple. And sometimes that's also easier to keep a common theme. And it's kind of like having like too many chefs in the kitchen, I feel Mm -hmm. like sometimes. And my teachers had always said, like, you can lose your intention when you start putting too many things in the same bucket. Mm -hmm. So I like to keep five or less and um, really try and support those who are more sensitive. And I've seen 
not only in practice, but personally as well, sometimes even herbal extracts are too strong mm-hmm. and people need tea. Even if the all of the books say this requires a tincture, some people really need the tea or some people mm-hmm. would benefit from homeopathy. It really just depends on what the person is managing and what their body is capable of handling. Somebody in a really depleted state uh, may not tolerate anything more than minerals and homeopathy. And I have definitely been in that situation as well. Uh, when I first started, I was having sips of chamomile or sips of dandelion. And I've been able to tolerate more and different extractions since then. But in the beginning, it was very, like, baby steps. Mm. So would you say you kind of, um, you prefer the kind of, like, lower dose uh, herbal approach? Like using, like, drop doses, a, a couple of drops, or...? There are some cases where drop doses are best, and sometimes that's just the plant. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know many people who can have more than a few drops of lobelia, though I do know one in particular that can have a few tablespoons. But for the most part, there there are some herbs where they're supposed to be worked with in drop doses, and there are others where maybe not, but for that person, yes. And for me personally, I found I can have a lot of nervines because my body just needs a lot of nervines. I can handle a lot of antispasmodics. Verveine's a very bitter herb, yet it's one of my favorites and I can tolerate a decent amount of it. But other people I've worked with, they can only tolerate maybe five or six drops. It really, it depends. Um, On the antimicrobial side of things, and I just want to preface this with the I am not a doctor. This is not medical advice at all. This is food for your brain only. Um, And just sharing some of my personal experiences with antimicrobials, less has always been more, especially if there's detox issues or anything that might inhibit the proper um, outlets for things to leave the body, then I have found sometimes it's better to approach things with a feather than a sledgehammer because I've done the sledgehammer and the sledgehammer really never got me anywhere good. Some people, they have really high tolerance and like that's what they need, uh, but that's not me or the people that tend to find their way to me. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a big discussion in the field of uh, herbalism, the, the low dose versus the high dose because, of course, there's the approach of you know, uh, flower essences and mm-hmm. uh, homeopathy. And then there's more of a, like the clinical herbalism approach, which usually uses in uh, higher dosages, like prefers to even find uh, specific dosage ranges that are in research mm-hmm. uh, to show effects. Um, so it's definitely, it's definitely a lot of food for thought. What would you say kind of um, really kind of sparked your interest in herbalism specifically? Like, was there a certain, like, herbal blend that you once made and you tried it and you were like, wow, like, there's something really going on with with herbs? Or what was your experience with that? So, awesome question. And there there's a story attached to it that came back um, the minute you asked this question. I had worked with an adrenal blend when mm-hmm. I was going through treatment. And at the time, I was dealing with some pretty wild symptoms. And when I took this blend, those symptoms went away. And 
I immediately thought, okay, what is this? What is in it? But mm. it wasn't lasting for a long time. And I had asked my doctor about it, but she said, she's like, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not an herbalist. I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. And these, you know, these are the blends that are recommended in the protocols. So don't take any more because I wanted to take more. I was like, oh, I felt better. So let me take more. And she said, don't take more. So I figured I would just research my way into the adaptogens. That's what I found out they were at the time. And that was kind of fast forward a few years later, how I figured out what I was going through was a lot of adrenal fatigue related to the tick-borne disease and the effects that that was having on mm -hmm. my body. And after getting further into my education, I realized that the blend that was recommended to me, it was actually having a rebound effect because it was all very stimulating adaptogens mm -hmm. and people who are super depleted aren't going to feel great from taking patnich ginseng. Again, mm -hmm. maybe some, but for the most part, the nourishing adaptogens like the ashwagandha and the mm -hmm. tulsi and codonopsis, really gentle herbs like that, was what I needed more consistently. And knowing now what I did not know then, I see why things were so difficult. And there were a lot of instances where that theme has kind of come to light. So I started working with herbs because it was the first time my body stopped doing really scary things that were sending me to the mm -hmm. hospital. And that was like the breadcrumb of, okay, maybe there's not a lot I can do, but maybe there's something I can do. And the more I started working with herbs, the better I started feeling, the better I started handling treatments. Um, at the time, I was having pretty gnarly Herxheimer reactions. And while experimenting with herbs, that also improved. So it seemed that every time I tried something, I got a little bit of a nugget of hope to keep me going. And... That said, as I've continued on, I've even learned why some of the antimicrobials I was working with wasn't helping. So it's it's kind of just been this continuous reassurance like, hey, this is working for you in this way. And even if you haven't figured out the whole way yet, it, there's really important things going on here where you're seeing some results. So let's keep going down that road. Mm. And I'm not one to give things a shot far past their expiration. I I don't think I'm wording that the way I want to, but my point is I've tried a lot of therapies over the years, uh, whether that's antimicrobial or restorative, and some of those therapies or modalities have really helped other people. I gave it I give everything three times, and after the third shot, if it doesn't resonate, I don't continue it. And I felt that way about a lot of things, but herbalism was always something where I just it connected very mm. deeply. What uh, what kinds of things have you been noticing working with clients? Is there some kind of uh, recurring uh, patterns uh, you're aware of in terms of what kinds of illnesses and things that people are often, um, you know, uh, suffering from and what, what gets them into seeking herbal help, nutritional help? Sure. So right now I'm seeing this year in particular, there has been a lot of autoimmunity a lot of gut dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of SIBO and just a lot of inflammation in general and burnout. Those, those are really the top, the top ones that have been coming my way. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed uh, definitely uh, lots of uh, gut issues uh, like burnout, mm -hmm. HPA axis dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It's present in most people to some degree. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard for it not to be with the kind of, um, you know, way of life, mm -hmm. uh, the stress and all the things going on. 
um, all around us in the media, the information we're getting, all, mm-hmm. all can be very, very stressful. Um, I want to kind of go back to that idea of uh, hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you how would you describe hypersensitivity and how it should inform the herbal practitioner, whether they're just using herbs for themselves or helping other people with them? I'm taking a moment to think because I, I want to make sure that I give the, the best answer here. I Hypersensitivity can show up in so many different ways. So it, it's a complicated question for me because in the Lyme world, we see a lot of mast cell activation where mm-hmm. I've heard of people who have had full-blown anaphylaxis from using like Epsom salt as soap. That's how inflamed and hypersensitive their body is. Is that the everyday with Lyme? No, thankfully, but that can happen. And that is something that I haven't worked with personally, but I have seen with um, friends in the community. That being said, it can show up as just inflammation Mm -hmm. in people's body, where if they have a little bit of a food that they might be sensitive to and not know it, it's going to come out in a physical type of way, whether that's through the gut or whether that's through hot flashes or rashes. So a lot of this stuff can have a physical presentation, but can also have an emotional presentation. Um, Neurological inflammation can cause a lot of weird types of presentations and feelings. And um, yeah, I I think it can appear differently for everybody but from a practitioner standpoint, I know you'll connect with this. Like, you know, when somebody's like super inflamed, just from meeting them, hearing a little bit about their personality, seeing how they look, if there's if they're flushed, if there's redness anywhere, there's there's ways that we know. Um, but mostly, people just know that something's off, and they they may not know what, mm. but it may be coming out in their joints or in other in other areas. Yeah, that's a particularly interesting topic in the. In the area of like uh, food sensitivities and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature, because what I've uh, what I've noticed is that certain people don't really have that that many food sensitivities, mm-hmm. and um, others that do have food sensitivities to a lot of different foods, mm-hmm. which uh, seems to show that there's kind of this um, like widespread chronic hypersensitivity or uh, inflammation throughout the body or a kind of an overactive uh, immune response. And it kind of brings up the question of, well, of course you want to avoid, you know, the things that that uh, triggered the, the sensitivity or the, the foods. But even better is to work on what's the reasons that they're happening. Uh, like whether it's, there's this idea of, of course, uh, like leaky gut and uh, mm-hmm. intestinal uh, permeability where um, if the gut isn't, you know, properly uh, functioning, if there's a lot of uh, inflammation, damage, et cetera, those uh, compounds in our food get out into our bloodstream and cause an autoimmune reaction, whereas they wouldn't if the gut was uh, functioning uh, normally. Um, what are what are some things that you see in like the field of herbalism or just supplements or herbs that you think should be brought attention to, like things that you might not like about it because there's, uh, you know, there's two sides to every story, you know. For sure. And th- this is a topic that has definitely fueled me on this journey continuously. And one of one of the big things here 
is really practitioner knowledge. I think it's so important for practitioners to have at least some of an herbal background. Uh, I, I want to edit what I just said. Um, I think it's important for practitioners to be knowledgeable in the field if they are going to make recommendations because too many times have I seen and I have been the person who has gotten incorrect advice and that has led to really poor experiences that honestly should have never happened. And it has, it hasn't tainted my experience enough to deter me, but I got into herbalism because I needed it to survive. Nothing else was helping. And I was open to the process because I had to be, and I noticed small enough improvements to kind of put things away, but I wouldn't expect somebody else just trying herbs out if they had a poor experience. You know, I wouldn't blame them for not wanting to open that door again. So that being said, it's really important to know about herbs before you're recommending them, especially if people are taking medication. A lot of people are on a lot of different medications, and I see St. John's wort in everything, and it's an awesome herb. It mm. really is, but if you're taking anything, it's going to end up being removed prematurely, which for any medication, that's a problem, but that could be really problematic for people who are on various different medications. So whenever I'm in Target, I will look at what's in the supplements. And some of them just say things like calm. And people don't read labels. Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes people. I've now read labels because I really need to. But prior to this, I was like, oh, cool, let's try this. Why not? And I, I get really nervous with meds because if, uh, if enough negativity happens, then that's going to affect the availability of the herbs. And this is something that we can control. This is, you know, something that we as practitioners can be very mindful of, especially on the education piece where we can't control what's going on the shelves, but we can at least make people aware. Like if you're on these meds, mm -hmm. stay away from St. John's wort. Don't work with schizandra. Don't work with kava mm -hmm. in some instances. And mm -hmm. that's been another topic that has been, um, raising some levels of concern with me. I love seeing that there's different types of small businesses growing here. And I love that they're catering to health and wellness. However, I think it's really important mm. that there are, uh, there's a lot of knowledge involved in whatever's being served and that there is at least notices just letting people know, like if you're taking these types of meds, this isn't something that we recommend you working with. Um, some herbs can't be mixed with alcohol. They can make people sick. I've heard of that this year with kava. Kava, yeah, kava especially because of kind of um, the weight that it could put on some people's livers, especially if they have any kind of dysfunction in their liver. Yeah. So mixed together, very, very bad combination. Yeah, I had a woman who went to a kava bar with her friends right after going to an actual bar. She only had a beer, but mm. she was sensitive enough, and she's also somebody with a chronic condition, and this is where the hypersensitivity piece comes in. Like, maybe some people can have a beer and go drink kava and be fine, but if there's inflammation or hyper hypersensitivity in the body somewhere, that person threw up, and they had an awful experience, and mm. it, that could have gone so much differently. So Yeah, you know, I've personally had that experience as well. Just... Um, you know, when I was first getting interested in herbalism before mm -hmm. I uh, went to study naturopathic medicine, I always like experimented with different herbs and, mm -hmm. and teas on myself. Uh, I would read some article online, mm -hmm. whatever, and I would go, uh, you know, check out the herb and see what the effects were. And one thing I noticed with um, 
with Kava is that when I, I never really ever had any problem with the tincture, if I would use some amount of the tincture. Mm -hmm. But when I would, there was cases where I went to a Kava bar and I would, you know, have like a cup or two of Kava and uh, my heart was like racing and all this stuff, which is very unusual given that uh, uh, Kava Kava Piper Mephisticum is pretty uh, generally uh, sedating and relaxing. Um, there's uh, there's also these kind of like powders that you can get online. I tried those and really messed up my GI system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of brings up the question in my mind, mm-hmm. the, the form of how it's used and the dosage, how it's prepared and things like that. Mm-hmm. Because I never noticed that from like, from like capsules or tinctures of kava, mm-hmm. but I did from drinking like cups of it or having like the, the rough powder. Um, and it's probably has to do with its sourcing too, I would guess. It's interesting that you bring this up because very recently within the last few months, there was a discussion going on about this in, in my herbal community. And what the teachers were saying was there were instances where people are not using just the root. They're throwing in the leaves mm-hmm. and other parts of the plant where it's not recommended to work with those parts. But the industry is trying to save money, which is the worst intention that you could start formulating anything with. And it has affected the quality of the product and really the, the product itself because it's no longer traditional kava they're putting ingredients in there that aren't meant to be. And that just circles back to my point of I have a lot of concerns about the industry making poor decisions uh, to save money and to be more marketable. And I have concerns about that affecting people's health, which as herbalists and practitioners, you know, the first, we don't have to legally take the code of ethics that doctors take, but we take a code of ethics every day just in our practice. Mm -hmm. And it definitely um, raises concerns and a lot of, it it enrages a little bit when I see that people are having experiences that could be detrimental to their Mm -hmm. health when they wouldn't have to be. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a little bit of a a complex situation, I would say, because you definitely want to protect people from having bad reactions from from herbs, especially if they're related to the fact that they don't have knowledge about what not to use them with, mm-hmm. or if you have, you know, certain conditions that you shouldn't use this herb at all, or you mm-hmm. shouldn't use a certain dosages. Um, but uh, with with the uh, regulation, we, and this is something we've spoke about as well, we don't want all access to that herbal medicine for people to use properly to be kind of uh, removed or decided for. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it comes down to a question of how do you use these things uh, safely? And I think, you know, naturopaths, herbalists, et cetera, who are, who are working with herbs are, are probably part of the solution to the problem mm-hmm. because it's really an informational, uh, educational uh, type, of, type of issue. Because if you don't really delve in deep on the on the herb, how, how can you know for sure? Like you were uh, mentioning about, about kava, and I think you were hinting at some of the, some of the research that, uh, that was done around it where there were some uh, cases of acute uh, liver toxicity. Pretty, pretty rare, um, but when that research was looked in, 
um, it it was as you said they were using different parts of the plant that are not meant to be used. They weren't just using the root of the kava. They were using the leaves and things like that, which are incredibly toxic. Mm -hmm. And in the traditional usage. And some of the studies were even taking one compound, and the name of the compound uh, left left me, but they were taking that compound and increasing it by like 100 times or something like that. Mm -hmm. Amounts that you would never get drinking a traditionally made cup of kava tea or a traditional... Um, strength extraction. Mm -hmm. So things aren't being studied properly either. And, and that study, if you give it a quick Google, it can be found on the internet. Um, my teachers were even talking about it. In yeah, I, I looked at it pretty closely. And one of the, uh, the major uh, confounding factors, I would say, in it is that a lot of the adverse effects that were reported, um, the people being studied were also on very potent medications mm -hmm. that have a lot of side effects or they were using other recreational drugs along oh, interesting. Um, along with them. Mm -hmm. um, that was the case, actually. There was a big study done on um, Mitragyna speciosa, uh, Kratom. Mm -hmm. And so it was looking into basically what are the, what are the harms associated with it. It was mm -hmm. looking at all the adverse uh, events. And in the, the majority of those cases pulled up, there was concurrent um, alcohol use in heavy amounts. There was concurrent, uh, you know, opiate use, recreational drug use, and things like that. And then also kratom. So mm -hmm. it, it brings up this question. This this really isn't to say, oh, all herbs are safe and they're mm -hmm. safe at any dose for everybody. That's absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. One should be careful because these, uh, you know, these plant compounds, they have a significant effect on physiology. So if it has an effect on physiology, it could have a bad effect. Um, but when researching it, I think it's really important to somehow isolate out other factors to really know what is the true safety of a certain herb. Um, but it's, it's something to definitely be really, uh, really knowledgeable about and, even from, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, where where's that information available for people if they're not, you know, working with an herbalist or a naturopath or some other wellness practitioner that's um, uh, guiding people in how to do herbalism. It's not like you can go to your doctor's office and ask about the the complexities of how St. John's Ward might interact with your medication. So, what do you think moving forward might be the kind of solution to that you know, even from like all of the scary things that could happen like if we just put that on you know on the other side of the table for a minute just from a constitutional standpoint there are just some herbs that don't match up with certain people and we started mm. talking about this before we even turned the podcast on you and i have very different constitutions mm -hmm. we work with very different herbs for very different reasons and fiery herbs like kratom or even some of the more stimulating adaptogens. I mentioned Panax ginseng earlier. That's not a good herb for me. My constitution leans more towards American ginseng, small amounts of eleuthero. If I take eleuthero past 4 p.m., I'm up all night long, you know, and some people don't blink and they're, you know, they don't have the same, uh, not reaction, but they don't have the same experience. Right. Everyone's going to be affected so, very individually. Yeah. So even if like nothing 
bad happens, like what if you just start working with herbs blindly and you know your intention isn't met either, then that's also a dissatisfying experience as opposed to if there were more access to resources that were properly teaching herbalism, because that's the other thing that's out there right now. It's kind of the wild west. And there are schools that are like, we'll give you a degree in herbalism. It's it's not federally recognized. So mm-hmm. there is not a school that is going to give an accredited degree of any sorts and I think some of the marketing is like really really misleading so that's that's the other side of it is also making sure that there's a proper education and not whatever the five dollar special is Mm -hmm. that's not um you know to become an herbalist it's years and years of training and it's really a lifetime of training because the learning never stops and that's part of the beauty of it but it's a laborious process and it takes time to hone craft and skill and I just hope that that's not taken lightly moving mm-hmm. forward um, with with the industry. Mm-hmm. I hope that you know there continues to be emerging practitioners who have the same intention of educating people. Mm-hmm. If I'm in the store and I hear people talking about herbs and they have like like they're asking questions out loud, I'll walk over and I'll introduce myself and I'll give them some guidance because I'd I'd rather share resources again, not medical advice, but give them the right places to go to see if it's right for them and what to discuss with their practitioner versus them making blind decisions and taking things that might really cause some problems for them. Yeah, yeah, it brings up a lot of you know really big questions. What I've noticed a lot of these um, the herbs that have kind of come under fire or uh, scrutiny they are ones that people use uh, recreationally. And I think that might be uh, part of the part of the issue there because mm-hmm. the mentality of how well, if you're using a herb for medicinal purposes and you're working with you know uh, a practitioner or at least you're doing uh, research into it versus you know what's the new fat herb that gives you some kind of buzz without mm-hmm. you know. Um, without being like alcohol or something like that. I'm glad you said fat herb because one of the fat herbs out there, um, and one of my favorites and one of the herbs that we're drinking today is ashwagandha. And it's in everything. And it's so awesome for so many different things. But if people are on thyroid medication or have thyroid problems, it's not the herb for them. And I've actually had cases that have been impacted by, by that. So you know, what, just from what I'm seeing and, you know, then I see ashwagandhas and everything, you know, if somebody likes something with ashwagandha in it and they drink it every day, it's going to build up. And that's, that's another instance where, you know, it may not cause like serious problems, but it could be problematic and cause some issues, but it's in everything right now. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's going to be interesting to see how, how things, uh, unfold around all that. I think, of course, it's it's really just about the the information and the the education more than more than anything. Um, so there's some herbs that people generally gravitate towards, especially herbalists. What are those herbs for you? Um, I know you like uh, wood betony, for example. I do like wood betony. I I've made a few friends over the last couple of years. I. I love adaptogens. They've always felt good in my body. And circling back to the start of our conversation, that was kind of what got me really interested in herbalism. And I've taken a real liking to Eleuthero in in small doses. I really like ashwagandha, Tulsi, licorice root. Wood betony and vervain have been two 
Nervines that I really, really lean on often. I'm a type A and I really sometimes need to forget about the to-do list and stop everything that's going on in my mind and just kind of focus on the here and the now. And wood bentney is really helpful for that. Vermeen will kind of take it to another level if I'm feeling super extra. And uh, the Latin name on that one is Verbena Histata, which rhymes with Hakuna Matata. And that's mm-hmm. how I've... Once I realized the Latin name on that, I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. It's so fitting because that's what it does. And I don't know that I would say Vervain would be a great plant friend for you because you're already pretty chill. And that might be just a little too cooling. But for somebody like me where there's a lot of fire, it's definitely an herb I'm reaching into often. Mm-hmm. So would, uh, would Betany, Vervain, um, what's your view on licorice root? For me, I I love it in my body. I tend to have very low blood pressure, and licorice root is super supportive during times when I'm feeling that. And that being said, that is an herb that I have to ask people if they have any type of blood pressure. Oh my god, blood pressure problems, or if they're taking medication for blood pressure because it could be problematic. And Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people like we were talking about ashwagandha before. Um, sometimes if people are on thyroid meds and they have some tea, like they don't notice a problem with licorice root. I've seen in practice people with blood pressure problems, um, notice a difference when Mm -hmm. drinking licorice root tea. And I, it wasn't something that I recommended. It was something that they just drank on their own consistently, uh, for like a day or two and not enough of it where I would have thought that there would have been a problem, but just going back to the hypersensitivity piece, that particular case as well, autoimmune, very inflamed, a cup or two of licorice and that was problematic for that person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's great for the adrenals and I think it's really helpful in, in certain instances and it's super soothing to the gut and the throat. And I'm a big fan of the taste, mm-hmm. but again, that's, it depends on the person and their constitution. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, in the book you might find the right herb for the right condition or the mm-hmm. right herb for the right symptom, mm-hmm. but there's the right herb for the right person. Exactly. Too. And that's key because, you know, 10 people with the same uh, condition or even the same symptom, maybe only a few of them, that herb is actually going to be really helpful. For some of them, maybe not too much of an effect. And for others, it might actually not be uh, super helpful. Um so it's definitely something that's uh, really important when approaching that. For sure. Even the method that it's recommended is so important. I had a case with marshmallow root where there was a lot of gut inflammation and the practitioner recommending it wasn't an herbalist. And they didn't give the wrong recommendation. They recommended marshmallow root. And that was perfect for that, uh, for what was happening in, in the body. However, they recommended it hot. And marshmallow root is really going to get the most um, demulectant properties when Mm -hmm. it's cold, when it's a cold extraction, Mm -hmm. preferably for a couple of hours. Like I'll usually just let mine sit on the counter for four or five hours Mm -hmm. or just throw it in the fridge overnight. And it gets like the substance like like Gatorade. That's usually what I tell people for the comparison purposes. And it's super hydrating and it's also very cooling and it lines the gut. And for that particular case where there was a lot of hot inflammation, that would have been the proper recommendation. However, it was told to be drank hot and that only just made it worse for that person because heat on heat was just not, the the purpose of the herb was kind of getting lost in the preparation method. And 
years later, that's one of their favorite herbs. And when used properly, or when worked with properly, rather, it, um, you know, it's a rock star. But again, it's all in the recommendation. Mm-hmm. So with your, um, with your tea blends, you have many, many different kinds. I wanted to ask you, what is kind of your process for, for thinking about or putting together these tea blends? Like, what, is that, what does that look like for you? In terms of like how you select which one's going to be in it, sure. Essentially, so all of my tea blends actually have a really cool story behind them. I haven't really sat down and said like, let me think about what to make. It has come out of a need, mm-hmm. so it's either been personally or through clients uh, or through friends that have needed something, and I will think about what herbs will best. Um, support that intention but that also tastes really good Mm -hmm. because a lot of my people are also sensitive to the tastes of some of the herbs so I'm really trying to put teas out there that don't taste like herby teas and yeah I'm I'm thinking of of all of them they're they're all all of the different ones are, are going through my mind right now and so this tea that we're uh drinking right now it's got ashwagandha, licorice, and what else? And Tulsi. And Tulsi. Yep. It has a really um, kind of nice earthy taste, and then it off the top, the, mm-hmm. the licorice kind of sweetness, mm-hmm. which is um, really good. I think for, for teas, of course, like the taste is going to be a, ba- a bigger factor than it obviously would be in tinctures or capsules or something like that. For sure. And this blend was really interesting because I kind of formulated it on the fly. I, I didn't even try – did I try Tulsi? I either only tried one of the herbs or none of the herbs. I didn't mm-hmm. have, and I, I had no idea what they would even taste like. And, and sometimes, you know, that works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it worked out really well. It was the first blend that I ever tried to put together, and it's been with me for almost four years now. So mm. that was that was pretty cool. What's your favorite of all your blends that you make, like, personally? It depends on what I'm, like, kind of going through or mm-hmm. what my body needs so in the summer I really love fried and frazzled it's it's like a real uh mineral rich blend and if I'm coming down with something I lean on the bee welderberry and that's why I made it I realized uh, two years ago I was like wait I don't have an immunity blend how am I an herbalist without an immunity blend I need mm-hmm. to get on that so that's how that one came about. The Peaceful Mind Peppermint one I made for me when I was going through treatment. I was constantly getting nauseous, and that's been really helpful there. The Chamomile Got Down was made for my mom. She was managing ulcers at the time, mm. and she gives me permission to always share her stories because she still loves that tea. And um, The Breathe one came about during this year when we had all of the uh, air quality issues. Mm -hmm. Was that back in April or May? Yeah, there was uh, all the uh, smoke from the Canadian forest fires Mm -hmm. and um, smog and and, and things like that. Yeah, so it it, it really... I love them all for different reasons, but I won't pick up Fried and Frazzled during the winter. The Mm -hmm. peppermint one, I'll drink every so often now thankfully I don't need it the way I used to but when I need it it's a rock star and I kind of picture it like like different groups of friends like there are your friends you see all your time and there are the friends that you don't see all the time mm-hmm. but you're equally excited when you see them it's mm-hmm. kind of like that yeah yeah the herbal plant allies the friends. plant friends <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah absolutely yeah so what are some of your favorite uh, like resources that you find yourself 
delving into in regards to herbalism? My hands down number one recommendation for anything herbal related is Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism. They are uh, they are my herb school. They don't pay me to say any of this. Mm-hmm. I just love them that you much. You pay them. <laughs> yeah. Best, best investment. <laughs> You're paying them to I say this for them. <laughs> best investment I ever made. And um, they have so they have years and years and years of of knowledge and experience. Um, the one of the head teachers, Katya, actually studied under Rosemary Gladstar. Mm. So she has a wealth of information there. And they have a virtual program now. They are in Boston. They teach the Boston Pharmacy students, so they're they're kind of in both worlds. So you'll get a lot of the actual research that's being done. They always provide. Uh, they are very honest about what they can and can't um, mm. discuss as far as you know what's safe to speak about with people and and what's not. Like they don't teach their students to start recommending herbs to people who are on meds. Like they're, yeah. they've always been very aware of uh, the safety of, of others. And that has been like the forefront of their practice. And before I found them, I was looking at a few other options and they weren't as, the, the word is leaving me, but I connected with Commonwealth on another level because they understand that sometimes people need both worlds. Mm. And I think, and maybe this is like an unpopular topic of discussion, but I'm just going to bring it up. Um, I would like to live in a world where, you know, both both kind of work together in, in a synergistic way, both forms of medicine, because, you know, there are times where we do need the Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a surgery that's needed, like emergency surgery, there's not really an herb that's going to fix like mm-hmm. a, a broken rib that's causing like a real problem and puncturing things. Like there are times when we need doctors and there are times where we do need medication. And, you know, there are also chronic conditions that medicine has no answers for. Mm-hmm. And I have enough practitioners in that area of medicine in my circle to see that and to know that. And they're getting people coming in who are on herbs and, you know, it would just be easier for everybody if everybody can work together. And I know that's not always, you know, possible, but the more that can happen, the better people are going to feel and Mm -hmm. the better things are going to work. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree. I think that cooperation, that communication is really important. At the end of the day, if anyone is on any kind of healing path or their health practitioner of any kinds, the primary goal is really to help the person get, get better, get, get healthier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything that leads to that goal, uh, whether it's through alternative health methods or conventional or together integrative, mm-hmm. um, is definitely the way, the way forward. I, I mean, there's, there's almost like no way to even be a, a purely conventional uh, practitioner anymore. No, there's not. Because the, the patients come in and they're on all sorts yeah. of supplements and things. And sometimes they don't even uh, share those things with their doctor because they feel like, oh, I might be judged for it or, you know, um, or maybe they don't have the knowledge on it. So why even bring it up? I'm just kind of doing my own thing. So that can bring up a, 
cases where there's, you know, patients and clients who are kind of experimenting with all sorts of herbs that they read about online. Um, and some of them, you know, if you have even like a month of herbal training, you know, like, oh, you don't use it for that. Yeah. You don't use it at that dose. Like, um, so it's really important to get that, uh, get that information out and, um, have basically, you know, a, a search for truth on what actually works, what is, what is safe. And, um, yeah. And I think that's why I gravitated towards Commonwealth because even in their materia medica, they list specifically if somebody is taking these meds, like do not work with this herb or, um, there, there's always the, the caveats, the cautions, the contraindications. And I've seen some programs where there's just none of that. And that's, that's worrisome for me. And even in the tick-borne world, everything is even more um, confusing, honestly, uh, as far as herbal resources go for, for that area, which I think is super important. Um, I really like the company Beyond Balance. They are, they're a company that has been around for at least 20 years. The formulator is also a naturopathic doctor and herbalist. So it's really cool when uh, both of those dynamics are at play. And she formulates based on need. Her her own family needed these formulas. And from what I understand, it was kind of a Hail Mary. It was, let me see if I could do something because nothing else is working. And 20 years later, they have a really great product line. And I have been working with them. Uh, I've been taking their products for five or six years now. And this year because I'm now one of their practitioners and also I'm not getting paid to say any of this, um, they formulate for people who are super sensitive and I am one of those people and I have been able to learn a lot of reasons why some of the other formulas that I was taking, why they weren't, why I wasn't responding to them in a manner that I would have had the protocols been approach differently. So there's a lot of practitioner education and sometimes, you know, the practitioners that are dispensing them, they they get to choose how much education they want to have. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, um, some people can look up old Lyme protocols, which used to be very antimicrobial heavy and very heavy on, um, on detoxes that were super stressful on the body. Whereas this approach is more crockpot, low and slow, hit with a feather, not with a sledgehammer, mm -hmm. and supporting the body in all of the areas that it needs, not only with detox, but also with nervines and adaptogens and things to keep the body as parasympathetic as possible while going through such intense treatments. So that can help reduce Herxheimer reactions, which now that I'm being properly guided, I have seen personally just in my own journey and um, I think it's important for people, especially with Lyme or even other chronic conditions, they, they have formulas for uh, mold, autoimmune, um, different viral issues, including people who have been affected by COVID or long COVID or Epstein-Barr, people who have been affected by heavy metals. They, they've kind of, they've really taken like the whole body approach and they've they found a way to support people in really important areas and the fact that they're knowledgeable on hypersensitive people has been 
huge and it just shows in their work because they've been around for 20 years and they keep going and anybody who's going through any type of inflamed state I would definitely recommend checking out Beyond Balance and finding a practitioner mm. who works with their products because they're they're another company where their formulas are made very intentionally and it's always safety first and it's practitioner training first and um, that's that's a great resource for people mm. who are looking for somewhere to go if they don't have answers. Mm-hmm. So around these, um, this idea of um, how certain kinds of um, infections, whether it's Lyme or COVID, et cetera, how, how much of it do you think is some kind of like effect on the nervous system that happens after like some kind of autoimmunity and how much of it is that like the pathogen is still present? It's a great question. And I'm just trying to put together cause it's another like complex answer cause mm-hmm. it's a little bit of both. Um, so when, when you're at the point of the pathogen killing, it's so stressful on the body where treatment itself is going to knock out the adrenals, keep somebody in a sympathetic state. The experience of being that sick is enough to knock out the adrenals or keep somebody in a sympathetic state. So there's an effect that being that sick has on the body where there's a big gap in the repletion that needs to happen. So then people will stay stuck there. And then there are instances where you know, the ultimate goal is to get the immune system in a balanced place. So even if there are some microbes, it's kind of like an Epstein-Barr virus situation where mm-hmm. maybe it flares every so often, but a flare doesn't look like I'm out of work for a year and in and mm-hmm. out of hospitals. Like maybe it just looks like I'm tired this week, you know? And I think that there's a lot of long COVID doing very similar things that chronic Lyme is doing because it's that much of a beast on the body. And mm-hmm. COVID has brought about a lot of, I don't want to say clarity, but COVID is the first thing that looks like chronic Lyme, um, where it's now like these odd symptoms that are happening in people and some of them really urgent and sometimes warranting emergency care, they're happening as a result of a pathogen in the body. And even after that pathogen might be as gone as we think it could be because we don't have the test to like really confirm what's there or what's not. Um, same thing with Lyme. It's still, if, if we're not doing the repair work, it, it's going to leave the body in the same state. Mm-hmm. So if that, I, I'm not sure if I, yeah, if I, I tied that up together. Yeah, it's, well. definitely, it's definitely a, <laughs> it's a chicken and egg thing. Like the, yeah. th- there was a problem and you know, a lot of the problems lie in there's not proper protocols put in place. Like mm. I've said a million times, um, just in my own situation and people coming to me, like people don't have to get that sick um, as far as, as Lyme goes. Like there is not enough recognition to get early diagnosis and early treatment and then it ends up going chronic. People don't get diagnosed for years and mm-hmm. then things pile up on top of that. And it's just one thing after another. Mm-hmm. And COVID's obviously a very different animal. Um, you know, and that has affected people right away. But there is that underlying piece was was there a chronic something happening that maybe wasn't known um that has caused things to be worse. And in some cases no, people are seemingly healthy and it's fine. Um, but 
yeah, like, like you said, there's there's a lot could, that can be going on there. But once people get to like chronic conditions and chronic inflammation, it's not uncommon to see high viral loads, even not COVID related. Um, on top of with with people with tick-borne disease, a lot of co-infections. Like there's usually a lot going on. Mm. And then that comes piggybacking with SIBO and and gut issues and just dysbiosis in general. It's it all ends up being one big mess. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what you said. It's the kind of chicken uh, chicken and the egg. Yeah. Is it? Um, did the you know virus or bacteria cause the weakened state of the body, or did the virus and bacteria was it able to actually infect because the body was in a weakened state? There actually is some research about how ticks select their prey with mm. electromagnetic. I, I wish I brought the study with me so I can properly quote it. That's terrifying. In, by the way, in any case, yeah, give it a Google. Um, the ticks' vision can see um, the the way their vision is they can tell who has lower immunity or something. I'm, I'm not doing this justice at all, so if anybody's interested, please Google it because I'm just going to continue to butcher this. But my point is there there is a way that they can detect more vulnerable people. And like anything else, if, if your body's prepared for a fight, it's going to handle it better than if you're not. And that goes with anything in life, life immunity aside. If you mm-hmm. prepare for something, you're going to be able to handle it better. Our lifestyle just in general encourages chronic stress and a chronic state of depletion and overwork and there might not be enough reserves for people to tap into um and covid kind of taught us that Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of questions around you know what how seemingly perfectly healthy people you know and prior to Lyme, I was like seemingly healthy ran 5ks did trained horses like I was go 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 and then I was not, like, very quickly. So was I in a state of depletion? I I, I think so. <laughs> I definitely think so. And looking back, I, I think there were certain areas that contributed. But would I have gotten that sick anyway? I, I don't know because, you know, we only know what we have experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's almost like in working with, with Lyme, for example, uh, you work with you know Lyme and how you uh, how you approach that whatever protocols, but also on what are the reasons that it uh, the body was susceptible to it. Because one of the things that really fascinates me about health mm-hmm. is why uh, some people you know uh, catch some kind of illness and they they clear it completely fine. They don't take any medications or anything like that. And other people, they don't, even with the usage of all these things. So it brings up that question of what is it about maybe their lifestyle or it it could have a lot of um, factors due to uh, like genetics and susceptibility to certain things. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I've noticed is when when the body gets kind of into a weakened state, whether it's through stress or uh, like a sudden illness, like a kind of – Everybody has a a unique um, weakest link in their chain, mm-hmm. so to speak. Where some people they, whenever they get into deficient state, they have start having a lot of gut issues. Some people have they start getting a lot of infections and colds and flus. Other people have autoimmunity flares, and it's kind of uh, fascinating that every person has like their own kind of weak spot, let's say, in terms of um, in terms of their health. Um, and I think that's re- really important when approaching 
uh, you know, wellness, herbalism, naturopathy. For sure. And I think that's the reason why I love adaptogens so much, just in as a general keeping the body as repleted as possible. Because if our if our defenses are down, we really can't handle anything. And if we're in a chronic state of stress, which most of us just are anyway, it's going to put those defenses down. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I have a, a mantra in, in my mind through every person that I see where if for whatever reason, if, if I don't know what else to do, because com- some people come to me with like six autoimmune diseases and I'm not a clinical herbalist. Like I'm here to support you during this part of your journey. But as far as, um, doing like deeper work like that, that's not my area of specialty quite yet. So a lot of my work involves just supporting the adrenals, supporting the gut, supporting Mm -hmm. the liver, because work like that can do enough good where, no, maybe like they need more, like maybe it is a, a Lyme client and I'm not their I'm not the person who's treating their Lyme, but I can help them support their body during that process. Right. And that that's another one where it's like, you know, that's what I've seen even even personally. Like things just got so much better once I started working with adaptogens. And I'm not even talking crazy high doses of anything super stimulating, just just nourishment. And that's actually what they also teach in herb school too. There's there's a whole Lyme course and a lot of it is just really talking about like living a little more wild and eating better foods. And it, it really just comes down to like what are we putting our in our body? Who are we surrounding ourselves with? How like where can we stop the like, you know, stop the leaks? <laughs> um mm-hmm. so it, it those little things and and minerals I keep I keep going back to to minerals these days. Uh, you know, good work can be done in like baby steps. It doesn't always have to be like the antimicrobial, like that's going to be the fixer. Like a lot of times that might cause more problems if you have low defenses and then you try to go to war on no sleep, it's not going to end well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, that's my little rant there. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about... Uh, your insights from the process of, you know, basically starting a wellness herbalism company and making teas, what are some kind of big, big takeaways or maybe things that you can say uh, in terms of guidance for other people who maybe want to get into the wellness sphere or, or herbalism, but they're not sure, you know, what the process looks like? I would say... There's so many things that I've learned over the last few years, and this, again, was not something that I planned to be in, which makes it even more interesting Mm -hmm. because I've learned, first and foremost, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it's a roller coaster. It's, the the ride is definitely worth the price of admission, but, and and perhaps that's why I've loved working with Nervine so much because just keeping a very level head during a time of chaos, which the first five years in business is going to be, and I'm actually approaching year number five. And that has been super cool, super cool to like think on and reflect. And um, I really liked how I went into this process very intentionally. I went into it knowing that I needed it. At the end of the day, it was something I needed. It was something I was doing anyway, and people around me loved it. So it just kind of grew organically. And it's been it's been really awesome to see that process. I wouldn't have been able to do that without Commonwealth. Uh, I, I wouldn't have had the guidance that I needed, and that's really important, like having that community 
They do have a business program as well. I have a business background, uh, so I didn't I didn't go through that part of their process mm-hmm. quite yet. But the American Herbalist Guild also has all of the information that somebody would need to go through that process because there's there's a lot of things that like technical stuff that legally has to be on the label and um, all of that. So dotting I's and crossing T's are are really important. Making sure you're set up. As a, as a proper business is really important. And taking the time to put that into products and, and research and testing the market and being around people who support you and your mission, like all of those things are, are that that's the good stuff. Like there, there's going to be a lot that, that, that isn't fun, like the accounting, like Mm-hmm. You know, signing up for this, you don't think that you're going to have to do the accounting stuff, but you have to do the accounting stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just part of it. But the not fun parts are you forget about them during during the cool parts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if somebody's like really into it and they love it, even if they're not sure, just do it anyway. Like that's just been my whole thing this entire time was do it anyway. When I first went into this, I didn't know if I would be well enough to complete a program. And five years later, I have my own business. So it's sometimes it's hard to see out of situations when you're scared. And I've noticed just meeting other other business owners that we all have our own struggles and roadblocks and we're all going to go through difficult times and that could look different for everybody. Mm. But the middle is going to be messy. That's why we have plant friends mm-hmm. and um, take it one day and one sip of tea at a time. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. Thank you. The, you know, the, the passion piece I think is really, really important, but it's mm-hmm. not enough in entrepreneurship, but it, I think it, it gives, can burn out. <laughs> yeah, it can. Especially, you need motivation after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially, you know, all of the other aspects of business that need to be managed for it to, uh, to work out, but the passion is what keeps you going. And I think if the passion isn't there for whatever that area is, it becomes very difficult. And then at the first, you know, major roadblocks, it's really easy to be like, uh, I don't know if this is worth it. But if you have that inspiration and passion, it reminds you anyway, get back up. It's still worth it. Still going to keep going. For sure. And I, I felt like I did a poor job of answering your motivational question earlier on in the, in the process. And this kind of connects with me more. That's when it came out for me, when I had my first real business roadblock and I was like, this feels impossible. And for me, it, it was it was a physical um, roadblock with health. And health really is everything. But I've heard so many stories over the last year where people had ro- roadblocks that were not health-related and I heard the story and thought, oh my God, that seems impossible, but they did it anyway. So mm-hmm. the common theme is it's going to be hard, but people do it anyway and they find a way to succeed. So mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we're going to reach that point where motivation just simply isn't enough and passion can burn out and everything can feel like a dumpster fire. And that's where, you know, Tapping into perseverance is really, really helpful. And um, that's where I had a lot of lemon balm, a lot of lemon balm and a lot of violet leaf. I was just Mm -hmm. so frustrated. And then I also needed to like be soft with the process because it was, you know, burning out wasn't going to do me any good. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was not in a circle where there were other business owners with a chronic illness either. And that's not something that I like to bring to the front of the table, but that is something that I have to 
manage into my work day and my life. And sometimes I think weeks are going to go one way and then they just flip upside down. Mm-hmm. And that also happens in other situations too. So it, it's, it's a roller coaster. And I think that's, that's what it's meant to be. And, um, it's helpful to be in the industry where I just happen to make things that make me feel a little bit better. So mm-hmm. I just reach behind me and sometimes I take stuff out of inventory and I'm like, all right, I know what I need to refill later because I need this now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 kind of interesting that um, I've read and heard and it seems very, very true to me that there's, um, you know, there's people who are more kind of like ideas and craft people and people who are more kind of like manager business types. And usually they work very well in partnerships together. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're, you know, a solo entrepreneur, you have to be both people. And if your passion is in a certain area, you have to learn all the things that you're not passionate about, which is, it's like, you know, it's like eating soap Yeah, is what it's like. for sure. Before getting into the tea business, I, I guess I was an accidental entrepreneur prior to this, I, I did have a standard nine to five, but I, I taught horseback riding a few days a week and I had a pretty large clientele for a couple of years. And um, I loved being in the ring, but that was a very small part of the job. And there was a lot of other things that were not glamorous attached to it. But again, when it's like something that's a part of you, you just you just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And then you make friends with other entrepreneurs. So all of you yeah. cannot feel so bad that it was an awful week or, or what have you. And some laughs can come about it. That, that's been, if I can give any advice, make friends with other small business owners because your other friends will not understand. They're like, the they only ones who really know it. what you're going yeah. through. <laughs> yeah. Your small business friends know what you're going through. And the, like those are the people that you want to lean on when things are just going backwards all the time. Yeah. 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 Well, um, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the Herbal Hour podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I did too. Is there um, uh, a place where people can find your work? Yes. So I am on Instagram at Holistic and Herby, and that's A-N-D, not the N symbol. And then my website is holisticandherby.com. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Bob. And uh, let's do an episode... Round two. Yes, sounds great. (laughs)